Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Good morning and welcome to our morning worship service here at West Houston Bible Church. I have a couple of announcements. Last uh, last night, Robert Chapman, Suzanne Chapman's husband, went to be with the Lord. There will be a memorial service for him this coming Saturday morning at 11 a.m. here at West Houston Bible Church. Also, uh, this morning, immediately following the morning service, we're going to have a brief meeting uh, just to update the congregation on what's going on in relation to the expansion. There's some things that you need to be informed about. Also, next week, we're going to have a special visitor with us on Sunday, and uh, we're going to have a potluck lunch following worship service so y'all can get to know him. His name's Eager Smolyar. Eager's a Great young man, fantastic young man. He's about 24 years old. We prayed for him for a number of years. He was a student of Jim Myers, finished the schooling there uh, about three years ago. And then he went to Jatomer, which is a small village of about 250,000, about 150 miles west of Kiev, and has started uh, several ministries there and is just doing uh, very, very well. And he is going to be here in Houston uh, Pine Valley's Missionary Committee has uh, brought him over here for a couple of weeks to do some things with them, and also uh, we're going to avail ourselves of the fact that he's going to be here. And since we've been praying for him, I've been to uh, Jatomer once to speak there, and uh, he'll be here on Sunday, and then he'll be giving an update on his ministry on Tuesday night, uh, the 23rd, uh, after after uh, Bible class. Before we begin this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're indeed grateful that we can be here this morning, that there is nothing that is more significant, more important than to gather together as a corporate body of believers to honor and glorify you. It's a time for us to reflect upon what you have done for us, to learn about your plans and purposes for our lives, and time to honor and praise you. Now, Father, we pray that all that we say and do this morning will honor and glorify you, We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing number eight. Praise to the Lord the Almighty. One of the themes emphasized again and again throughout Scripture is the theme of memory. To remember what the Lord has done. To do this in memory of what the Lord has done. Again and again, There are different things in the Old Testament uh, prescribed to the Jews to do in order to remember the deliverance of the Lord, the miracles of the Lord, the power of the Lord. It has worked itself out in space-time history. And one of the reasons for establishing these monuments, establishing these markers, is so that subsequent generations will realize that these were not simply subjective religious experiences that people just did not have a some sort of emotional uh, experience with God or that this was something that had just uh, uh, happened that was made up, but that there was actually an event that occurred on a specific date, at a specific time, in a specific place, and that the God who is the creator God of all things acts in human history. We see the same thing when we come to the Lord's table. When Jesus established the Lord's table, taking the elements from the Old Testament Passover meal and giving them new meaning in reference to his death, his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross and his own uh, humanity, when he took those elements, the bread and the cup, and invested them with new meaning, he said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of of me. It is an opportunity for every believer to remember something that transpired in history. It may have been almost 2,000 years ago, but whether it happened 2,000 years ago or 
2,000 months ago or 2,000 days ago or 2,000 seconds ago. It is just as real. And so we are mandated to focus on the reality of that historical event. And the Scripture doesn't dictate how frequently we should do it, just as often as we do it. There are some denominations that observe the Lord's table once a quarter. There are some that observe the Lord's table every Sunday. There are some that observe monthly. But I think that our option when we we uh, observe the Lord's table monthly is is a good time because it's not so frequent that it becomes rather uh, mundane and you lose its significance, but it's not so infrequent that if you're sick or out of town, then you can go as much as a year and a half without having the Lord's table. I remember a time when I was in seminary working in a Baptist church. It was about three or four months before I realized they only did it quarterly at certain nights, and most of the time I was gone or out of town or otherwise occupied, and I realized I went about a year and a half and hadn't had the Lord's table. So it's a good time interval. The Lord's table is a doctrinal lesson in, uh, in an object lesson. Where two elements, there's the bread and the cup. The bread is unleavened because leaven represents sin in the scripture. And the unleavened bread was designed to be a picture of God's provision for man. We studied last time in, in the temptations of Christ how Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8 in reference to the uh, bread of heaven. He said, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And in the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the bread of life. So when we look at the bread, it is a picture of Jesus Christ. It is a picture of his sinlessness. It is a picture of God's ultimate provision to us for our spiritual life of the second person of the Trinity. The cup also pictures something. The deep red color of the wine was a picture of blood. And it was a picture of, and blood itself in Scripture stands as a representative of death. For example, in the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9, Noah is told that whenever man sheds, whenever blood is shed by man, uh, man should also shed that man's blood. And the shedding of blood there refers to a violent type of death, and specifically in that case, a homicidal type of death. So it doesn't matter whether blood is actually shed. It is, uh, there can be other forms of murder that uh, do not cause bleeding. But that term, that term stands as a metaphor or a symbol for violent death. So that's what we have at the Lord's table. We have these two elements. One speaks of who Jesus Christ is. The other speaks of what Jesus Christ uh, did on the cross. We come to the Lord's table as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Lord's table would really be just an empty uh, ritual for you. It would not have any meaning or significance. You don't gain any grace. You don't get any higher merits with God because you participate in it. It is simply a memorial meal designed for every believer in order to get them to think, stop, reflect, meditate on who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. So when we come to the Lord's table, it's open to everybody. It's not restricted by church membership or any other human factor. The only requirement is that you have personally put your faith alone in Christ alone. The Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians that when they came to the Lord's table, they had often come with uh, carnal motives and had often used the opportunity of eating at the Lord's table. At that time, they had a whole meal. They would use it as a time for gluttony and a time for drunkenness. Uh, today, we only have a small amount of grape juice, so we can't get into that problem of drunkenness at the Lord's table. But the principle there was that they were to examine themselves to make sure that they came to the Lord's table in fellowship and with the right motive. So we're going to begin, as usual, with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use First uh, John 1, 9 to make sure that you're in fellowship with the Lord before we come to the table. And then I'm going to ask Doug Daly if he would please return thanks for the bread. Let's pray.
Father, as we take the communion, we thank you for this opportunity to remember what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, serving as our substitute. We thank you for the bread representing his body and his person, that he was willing to take on true humanity and uh, in all humility. And we thank you for the uh, wonderful example that he gave for us in using the same uh, spiritual assets that we have to meet all the tests uh, that we face. He faced those through these assets. And we thank you for this chance to commemorate uh, his person and work on the cross. We pray that the Holy Spirit will bring things to mind that will make this meaningful and glorifying unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. During the Passover meal, known as the Last Supper, our Lord went through the supper, the standard Jewish Passover meal. When he came to the bread, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given as a substitute for you. As often as you eat this, do so in remembrance of me. Going to ask Doug Carn if he would please return thanks for the cup. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to celebrate the Lord's table. Father, as we take the cup, we remember our Lord going to the cross on our behalf, that he who knew no sin was made sin as a substitute for us. Father, we pray that you'll bless the cup to the glory and honor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, it is our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. Our Lord then took the third cup, which was known as the cup of redemption, and he said, This is the new covenant of my blood which is given for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let's stand together. We'll sing our second hymn, number 185, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. We'll sing the third verse softly, crescendo on the fourth. Please stand. Giving is very much part of the worship of the local church. It's based on grace. It's not based on any desire to gain merit or favor with God. It's not based on any sort of system of set percentages, but is based on uh, how God has prospered us. Scripture says, as every man uh, purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for what you have provided for us, all the blessings that we have in the heavenlies, as well as that which you have provided for us here on earth. Now, Father, these gifts that we give are merely a token of our appreciation for your magnificent grace in our lives, and we dedicate this, these offerings to you in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. 
Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our time of studying his word. Father, we're so grateful that we can come to your word, that we have a completed canon of scripture that has been handed down to us through the ages, that you have overseen not only the process of inspiration, but also the process of preservation, and that we can be certain that we have your word. And Father, as we study these things, we are mindful that uh, every dimension of this, these expressions that we study today are important, that you have uh, inspired, you have breathed out uh, every word of Scripture and even the grammatical tenses, the prepositions, everything is significant in light of uh, your inspiration. Father, we pray that as we study, we will receive comfort and encouragement we will be strengthened and challenged as a result of the study of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in the month of October, we always find a certain segment of the population a little more interested in things of spirits and witches and demons and things like that, demon possession, spirits, getting in touch with uh, the dead, the paranormal, all of these kinds of things. And so it's sort of appropriate that... In this particular month, we're going to take a little uh, focus on the uh, attacks of Satan and demons toward uh, believers. Last week, we looked at the attacks that occurred during the time of the Incarnation as they were directed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, I want to look at the direct assaults of Satan and the demons uh, to the population in general at the time of the Incarnation. We have been looking at Satan's direct attacks in history as part of our study of the angelic conflict, and we have seen that the first direct assault occurred in Genesis chapter uh, 3 when Satan indwelt a serpent in order to tempt first the woman and then the man to cause the human race to fall into sin to uh, disobey God. The next attack was an attack on the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman was a technical term used by God in his outlining of the curse, the results of sin in Genesis 3. As he directed his attention to the serpent, he said that there would be this ongoing battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would uh, only be... uh, temporarily wounded by the seed of the serpent, but the uh, seed of the serpent would be fatally wounded by the seed of the woman. So Satan understood that this term, seed of the woman, was important, so he would have to somehow prevent uh, that prophecy from being fulfilled. And the first assault was in Genesis chapter 6, when the sons of God took human wives in order to uh, create a less-than-human Race. The, there are no other direct attacks in the Old Testament. There are some indirect attacks, which we'll get into when we study indirect assaults. There are no other direct attacks until the Lord Jesus Christ was incarnate. We see a direct attack on him at the beginning of his ministry, the inauguration of his ministry, when God the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. And after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, He was directly tested three times by Satan. But at that same time in history, there were other assaults that were taking place. I find it interesting that if you look at the Old Testament, there is not a single example of demon possession. That's what we're going to talk about this morning is demon possession. People always have questions about that. What about demon possession? Can Christians be demon possessed? How do I know if somebody's demon possessed? All manner of questions that a lot of which are not directly or even indirectly uh, addressed by the scriptures. Demon possession is one of those things that's great uh, grist for Hollywood movies and Uh, Stephen King novels and things like that that uh, uh, interest a lot of people and people want to find out if there's something else out there. But actually there are very few references to demon possession in the Bible. Uh, As I said, there's none in the Old Testament. When you come to the New Testament, a lot of people 
think at sort of first glance that there are uh, a number of examples, but that's because as you read the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, they're really talking about many of the same incidences. And if you break those incidences down, what you discover is that uh, there are no more than approximately 11 instances of demon possession in the Gospels. That's it. Nothing more than that, and we'll break those down in just a minute. In fact, when you look at the New Testament, there's approximately 119 references to demons. Now, you can't get there from just doing a word study on demons because you have to talk about uh, other passages that relate to principalities and powers, evil spirits, unclean spirits. There's uh, a number of different uh, terms that are used to describe uh, demons and demonic activity in in the New Testament. But there are approximately 119 references to demons in the entire New Testament, and 87% of those references are in the Gospels and Acts, 87%. There are just a few that we find in... Um, or just a few that we find in the New Testament. Let me see. We've got one projector that's down. Let me turn it on. Okay. We have, uh, there's a couple of other general allusions than these four. There's a couple of passages that talk about just the hierarchy of principalities and powers and that sort of thing. And Ephesians chapter 6 and Romans uh, 8, uh, 29, I mean 8, uh, 839. But here we have references in 1 Corinthians 10.20. There's a reference to sac where Paul talks about sacrificing to idols is equivalent to sacrificing to demons, indicating that demons are really behind all false religions. There's a reference in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, which warns about deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. There's another passage uh, in 2 Corinthians 11:14 to 15 which talks about Satan appearing or masquerading as an angel of light and his angels as servants of righteousness. We have Paul talking about the thorn of the flesh messenger from Satan which is probably a demon. And then uh, James 3:13 through 15 uh, identifies human viewpoint thinking or worldly wisdom as demonic. So they're, they're general passage, and when you look at the epistles, and this is very important to understand, the epistles are written to church-age believers to teach church-age believers how to handle the issues of the spiritual life. The church-age, the, the epistles uh, are, are that portion of the Bible which are directly addressed to the church. And so if there is no mention anywhere in the epistles of demon possession or how to protect yourself from demon possession or how to deliver yourself from demon possession. And demon possession is ignored in that entire body of literature. Then, as I'm going to say as we get to the end, the silence speaks volumes. Because if the Scripture is sufficient for all things and there's no mention of this as a problem, then perhaps it's not a problem. Because if it were a problem, the Word of God would, would address it. Well, let's get into our uh, study. In the Gospels, there's about 11 specific references to demon possession as an issue during the time of the Incarnation. I find it fascinating that there's, there's no mention before the Incarnation. There's no mention of it being a problem in the church age. I believe there's instances of demon possession in the book in the time of the tribulation in the book of Revelation, but in these other periods it's not really an issue. Why would that be? Well, what you have in the incarnation is the second person of the Trinity coming to earth to perform salvation, to die on the cross, and to offer the kingdom to Israel. It is the time when the Lord Jesus Christ came to offer what God had always promised to the Jews in the Old Testament. So as he appeared on the earth, it really stirred the demons. It caused quite a ripple effect among Satan and his army, and they were doing everything they could to try to stop, to try to prevent Jesus from fulfilling his promises to bring in the kingdom 
for Israel. And that's part of the backdrop. So let's, uh, with that in mind, let's break down our references to demons in the New Testament. There are three general statements in the New Testament about casting out demons. These happen when Jesus is with a crowd, and there are many people who come with diseases, with evil spirits, etc., and they come to Jesus for healing. For example, Matthew 4.24, they brought to him all who were ill, all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, uh, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Now, uh, your liberal is going to come along and say, well, they just looked at demon possession as some way to explain psychiatric problems or emotional problems if they just had Zoloft or Prozac and they wouldn't have had demon possession. But that, uh, we don't treat the Bible that way. Uh, if Jesus treats it as demon possession, then it is a literal event of demon possession. It is not some sort of psychiatric malady or neither, or neither is it a euphemism for some other disease. For example, in this passage, they can clearly identify uh, epileptics and paralytics and other diseases. They knew what they were. They didn't mask those with just saying, well, it's just all demon, uh, demon possession. Second passage, in Matthew 8:16, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and healed all who were ill. That's a second category. He recognized the difference between those who were demon-possessed and those who were ill. Mark 1, 29 to 34, and Luke 4, 38 to 41 are parallel passages. Those, events, those passages are talking about the same events. The third general passage is in Luke 7, 21. At that time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and granted sight to many who were blind. So we know that even though there are only eight specific incidences described in Scripture, there were others. There were a lot of people, a lot more people who were uh, demon-possessed, and these came to him, and he cast out the demons. When we look at those eight specific events, we have a situation of a man in a synagogue who comes. Jesus is there, and he has an unclean spirit. That's a synonym for a demon, as we'll see in our study in, on these technical terms in just a minute. That's Mark 1, 23 to 28, and Luke 4, 33 to 37. Then we have the episode of the Gadarene or Gerasene demoniac. In one account, there's two of them. Matthew 8, 28 to 34. Mark 5, 1 to 20, Luke 8, 26 to 40. Third, we have the Canaanite woman's daughter uh, mentioned in Matthew 15, 21 to 28, and parallel to Mark 7, 24 to 30. Then there's a boy who, fall, who, when he's possessed, he falls into a fire. Now, this is an important episode in Luke 8. He is a young boy. The term for boy there indicates that this has been going on since he was maybe as young as three or four years of age. And whenever he would become possessed by this demon, he would uh, just thrash about. He would lose complete control, go into convulsions, and sometimes he would fall into the fire and do, do uh, injury to himself. Fifth, there's a mute boy who has seizures. So we see that in some cases, demon possession causes seizures, demon possession causes deafness or muteness, things of this, but these are not necessary signs of demon possession on the one hand, neither is it, is it, should demon possession be the first thing we look for when someone has a disease, is mute or deaf or has seizures or something like that. It just may or may not be a symptom of that. There's a blind and mute man mentioned in Matthew 12:22 and Luke 11:14. There's a woman who's bound by Satan. It doesn't really say she's demon-possessed, but I'm going to include her in this passage just uh, because it's very likely she's bound by Satan for 18 years, mentioned in Luke 13, 10 to 21. And then eighth, a mute demon-possessed man mentioned in Matthew 9, 32 to 34. This is it. These eight specific references, and we have to figure out everything that we know about demon-possession, demonic activity and deliverance of demons from these eight passages. 
Now, we live in a world today when people don't want to be very specific about doctrine. They want to be general about doctrine. There has been a movement for at least 30 or 40 years among biblical scholars to say that certain terms that have traditionally been taken as technical terms are not really technical terms, and we're just reading too much into them. We're just theologizing these things uh, way too much. But I disagree with that. I think that these terms, because they are used with various other synonyms, are demonstrable as technical terms. There's another group of passages that's used that references demons, and this is instructions and incidents related to the disciples. Once again, just sort of general statements. The first group is Matthew 10, 1 through 16. Jesus is giving instruction to the disciples. Uh, this is parallel to Mark 3, 13 to 19 and Luke 9, 1, and also in Mark 6, 7 to 13. The, dis- the disciples go out and they have they cast out demons. That's part of their ministry. It's part of this kingdom announcement ministry that is so important to understand in the first part of Jesus' ministry. He came announcing that he was the Messiah and that the kingdom of God was at hand. And just that announcement just caused this stir of demonic activity in opposition to his particular uh, ministry and to keep that uh, to keep that from happening. This whole assault uh, goes back to understanding what was happening from the from the prophecy in Genesis 3:15 concerning the seed of the woman. Uh, the Messiah was to gain victory over Satan. So for him to appear on the planet and to be moving around generated this opposition because they were trying to prevent him from carrying out this prophecy of bruising Satan on the heel or gaining a permanent victory over Satan. Now, if we want to understand anything about demon possession, we just have to examine an account, and I don't want to take the time to go through all of them, but I'm going to pick one as sort of a paradigm account because it includes uh, most of the information that we need in order to understand what's going on. And that's the episode of the uh, Gadarene demoniac, and we'll begin by looking at the Mark account. The Mark account begins in Mark chapter Mark chapter 5. Jesus has been on the side, uh, on the western side of the Sea of Galilee in the area of Tiberias and Capernaum, and he and his disciples have crossed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's important to note that this is in a Gentile area. It is a Gentile-controlled area. It's up near where the area we call today the Golan Heights, and it is the region of the Gerasenes. And in verse 1, we see where they go. They go to the area of the Gerasenes. And in verse 2, we read, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean Spirit. So he is met by this particular individual. Now, there's a couple of things we need to observe here. First of all, in none of the accounts related to this individual, or when there's two of them, is Jesus seeking out the demoniac. The demoniac is coming to him, in fact, is running to him. He is expecting something horrible to happen. He's in, Jesus is in an area where there are a number of graves, and this demon-possessed man is living among the dead. There seems to be a preoccupation with the dead among those who are involved in demonism, but that is not always true. Too often Satan sets these things up, and people create their own little paradigm that you have to see this, this, and this, and if, if there's demonism involved. And that's just one of the ways Satan distracts people is that while they get all focused on demon possession being something like what you see in the film The Exorcist, in many cases it may not be that way. It's certainly not going to be that way when Satan indwells the Antichrist. It wasn't that way when Satan indwelled Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot didn't have his head spinning around spewing green split pea soup. 
So we have to be careful of, of, of Satan's uh, red herrings. Now, what we learn about this man is he comes, he comes seeking Jesus, but he doesn't come seeking deliverance from Jesus. This is so important to understand. I have read any number of good scholars from Merrill Unger to Kurt Koch, who's a, who's a European scholar who's written quite a bit about demons and demon activity and any number of others who will go to this passage and uh, will say, well, he was coming for deliverance. There's nothing in Matthew, Mark, or Luke's account to indicate he was coming for deliverance. He's the only demoniac who approaches Jesus of all the demon-possessed accounts. But when he comes to approach Jesus, he's not coming for deliverance. The others are brought to Jesus to be delivered. This one doesn't come to be delivered. In fact, he comes to implore Jesus to not torment him. But let's just read the description here in verse 3. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, so he exhibits some sort of... uh, uh, supernatural or extreme strength. He's not, the chains won't hold him. They say he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, bruising himself with stones. So we see a lot of things that happen that are, that are quite negative, but this is not that we, this is not prescriptive uh, written material. This is not saying these are the kinds of things to look for to analyze if a person has been demon-possessed. This is just what occurred in this instance. So he comes to Jesus, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and which is a sign that this is the same word used for worship. The demons have to worship God because God is still God. They know God exists, and they understand who the authority in the universe is. So he falls down before him, and notice, it is the demon's the one who's in control. This isn't the volition of the individual man. He is demon-possessed. This is the demon who is forcing this, and it is the demon who is speaking. And, And he cries out with a loud voice, and he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? This is the demon speaking, not the man. Because the man is under the control of the demon, and the demon understands who Jesus is and understands that he is the Son of God. And then he says, I adjure you or I implore you, by God, don't torment me. See, he's not coming for deliverance. He's coming because he thinks that when Jesus establishes the kingdom, what's going to happen to the demons? You skip ahead to Revelation chapter 20, you realize that they are... Uh, taken out of any influence in the world, just like Satan, they are bound. And so he is expect, he's expecting Jesus to bind, them, bind him and send him to torments at this time. That's why he says, uh, don't torment me. And then Jesus said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now, this is an important, uh, important passage. Let me go here to show a comparison of terminology. This is really important. First of all, we have to understand that there's a lot of debate about what these terms mean. The key term that is used for for um, demon possession is the third one down, and it is the, wor- the, the present participle daimonizomai. It's formed by the uh, basic root daimonos. Daimonion is the noun for a demon. And it's a participle, it's ongoing action, it's a passive participle, which means to re- the subject receives the action, and it literally means to be acted upon by a demon. Now what you'll find, and this is very popular today, it's popular with folks on TV, it's popular with many uh, conservative evangelicals who aren't charismatics, uh, and uh, this is, uh, was set forth by a man who was a Dallas Seminary graduate and head of the theology department or Bible department up at uh, Moody Bible Institute and many others, including Merrill Unger, is that this is just a generic term, and the idea of demon possession is something that we've read into this term theologically. Where do you get the idea of possession here? 
And then they play with the English word possession, which they say that has the idea of ownership. And, well, Christians really can't be owned by Satan because they're in the family of God, so they can't be demon-possessed, but they can certainly be controlled by a demon or inhabited by a demon. See, they play these, these semantic games. The reality is is that in all of these passages, uh, the word daimonizomai is juxtaposed in synonymous context with the next phrase, echo daimonion, which means to have a demon. And uh, it, the terminology that's used when it talks about the demon in him is that he is inhabited by a demon. Uh, the demon is in him. And so Jesus talks about casting the demon out, ex, ex, erkamai. We'll get to, let me see, that's on this slide, ex, erkamai, which means to come out. It's formed on the preposition ek plus the verb erkamai. Erkamai means to come or to go or to proceed. Ex means to come out, to go out, to proceed out. But when you add that preposition, ek, it always means out of. So you have this terminology of in and out. The demon has to come out of the person. And then what happens to these at the end of this story is Jesus is going to cast the demons into, send them into the swine. Eis erkamai. And there you have that preposition, E-I-S, which indicates going into. And in uh, this passage and others, it talks about Jesus commands the, the, um, the, the demon to come out of the person using the Greek verb ekbalo. Balo means to throw or to cast, and ek means out of again, and so it means to cast out. So Jesus ekbalo the demon. So you always have, in conjunction with daimonizomai, this this phraseology of going into, coming out of, going into and coming out of, which tells you that daimonizomai means to have a demon that has taken up residence in somebody and is overriding their own soul control of their body, and this demon's in control. That's what demon possession means. And if you look the word demon possession up or even possession up, in an English dictionary, like the Oxford English Dictionary, you will discover that possession doesn't, doesn't only mean ownership, it also means control. And so these word games that people use are simply a means to justify their own uh, experiential theology. And the reason I call it experiential theology is because I've been involved in debates, and Tommy, who co-authored our book on spiritual warfare with me, has been in debates with, uh, he's debated Fred Dickinson, I never have, but I've been in debates with others, and they constantly refer to the numerous case files that they have of Christians who are demon-possessed. But see, they've played fast and loose with the whole definition of demon possession, and um, their ultimate criterion is their own experience. Well, this person came into my office, and such and such a thing happened, and so obviously it was a case of demon possession. So they play fast and loose with the terminology in Scripture. What we have is terminology, for example, in, in our passage in Mark, the demoniac is, ha- is with an unclean spirit in numity akatharta. So we have this terminology, unclean spirit, juxtaposed with the terminology of uh, daimonizomai or demon, and this particular uh, demon has a name. Now, when you get down to verse 9, Jesus asks the demon, what is your name? And the demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, another popular thing you'll hear is that if you're going to cast a demon out of somebody, you have to know their name so that you can exercise control over them. That is a principle that comes out of occult methodology. You don't see this happen anywhere else in Scripture. Jesus is making a point here illustrating that uh, many more than one demon could uh, possess or internally inhabit an individual. Well, in verse 10, we we see that the demon begs him not to send him out of the country. So there's a herd of pigs there. Remember, this is a Gentile area. Pigs are unclean animals. You don't find too many Jews with a herd of pigs. And so the demons want to go into the herd of pigs. They want to inhabit unclean animals. 
And so they begged Jesus to send us into the pigs and let us enter them. Notice that terminology. That tells us that the meaning of this word demon possession is not just being acted upon by a demon. See, that's where a lot of people go today. You just have a problem. You've got a demon of lust. You've got a demon of alcohol. You have a demon of greed. You know, it's not your fault. The devil made you do it. Just blame the demons. Now, there is such a thing as demon influence, but you've been under demon influence since the day you were born. We'll get into that next week. And the following week, in James 3.15, James identifies all human viewpoint thinking as demonic thinking because it operates on the, on the basic presuppositions of satanic thought. And so it doesn't matter who you are out there, if you're, a, if you're a socialist, if you're a Marxist, if you're an evolutionist, if you're just a do-good religionist, you're, they're all operating on demonic thought. One's no more or less demonic than the next. And they're all equally demonic because they're not operating on biblical principles. And any time we as believers are not operating on biblical principles, the only option is demonic thought, and that's demon influence. So people get are under demon influence all the time. Just turn on the TV and watch the uh, political debates. So we have a very clear definition from the terminology of Scripture. Now, how do you know if a person's demon-possessed? What are you going to go to? You're going to go to Scripture, or you're going to go to experience? See, this is one of the more interesting things about this, is because most people think, well, oh, somebody's going to be demon-possessed. They've got to be, oh, let me see, they're going to do foul things. They're going to commit human sacrifice. They're going to... Uh, they're going to blaspheme the name of God. I mean, you can come up with any number of things that you think would be characteristic of someone that is demon-possessed. But you're generating that out of the influence that has been brought to bear on you through films, through uh, false teaching, through just general uh, misconceptions that run through our culture. But down through the history, there have been a number of people who have identified different characteristics of demon possession. I want you to note, none of this comes out of the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say this is what characterizes demon possession. In fact, if, and I believe he was, Judas Iscariot was Satan-possessed, he didn't exhibit any of those kinds of characteristics. Okay, let's look at him. This is kind of fun. Rabbi Huna, this was a Jewish rabbi who died around A.D. 297, and he delineated four characteristics of demon possession. First of all, this is somebody who walks around at night. Okay? <laughs> For some of you who are vampires, who don't, you know, would rather sleep during the day and sit up all night talking, well, <clears throat> uh, spending the night on a grave. Well, there's all kinds of teenage groups that go out and sit around in a cemetery for fun on Halloween. Uh, tearing one's clothes. Uh, destroying what one is given. Some people are just klutzy. Okay. So this would mean that if you do these things, you're demon-possessed. That was his idea. Okay. Then there's another list that I have here that goes back to the Puritans in the uh, 17th century, they had a rather complex list of things that would indicate if a person were demon-possessed. First of all, if you thought you were possessed, you were possessed. Now, I might go with that because Muhammad initially came down from the mountain thinking he had been, been had, a, had a gene, a spirit, speak to him. I think it was Satan. often wondered why Muslims uh, like to worship Satan, but they're blinded by the God of this age. But anyway, this was the Puritan list. To think you were possessed, to lead a wicked life. Now, how would they have defined a wicked life? Third, to be persistently ill, fall into a heavy sleep, vomit unusual objects, you know, like toads or serpents, worms, <laughs> iron, stones, or, you know, things like nails or pins. I'd be concerned. The to blaspheme. Now, this is one that shows up in a lot of different people's lists. You're going to blaspheme God. My question is, how many times in the biblical examples did these people blaspheme Jesus or God? 
Once? Twice? Not once. Not one single time. Fifth, to make a pact with the devil. You think that three- to four-year-old young boy who would be demon-possessed and throw himself in the fire, you think he made a pact with the devil? F, to be troubled with spirits. Uh, G, to show a frightening and horrible countenance. Well, you know, some people are just born that way. (laughs) Others of us work at it. To be tired of living. Well, I could, I know a lot of people who are ready to go meet Jesus right now. We're tired of living in this carnal world. I, to be uncontrollable and violent. Well, you know, if we carried that out in our culture with all the sex offenders and all of the uh, abusers, we could just say that everybody's demon possessed. It's not their fault. It's the devil's fault. Oh, speaking of which, there was a professor at Dallas Seminary back in the mid-80s who got involved with the vineyard movement, and he told a friend of mine who uh, actually became my assistant pastor when I was up in Irving, told him that, that any time there is a, a sexual, some kind of sexual perversion, a demon is always involved. And this was really interesting because his friend of mine at the time was, he and his wife had befriended a young lady who had all kinds of problems, and she was telling them all about how her father had sexually abused her when she was young and trying to straighten out her life. And, and so this, this young man, this was before he became assistant pastor, had told the seminary professor, I mean, we have this sort of gut-level trust in our seminary professors, had told this seminary professor, and he said, well, uh, and he began to counsel her separate from this, this other man, and they ended up having a, a little exorcism one night over in Fort Worth. They had three pastors there, and, and, you know, she spoke in different voices, and she did all of these things people come to expect of demon possession, and they cast out the demons and declared it uh, some level of victory. And, of course, she was claimed to be a believer, was a believer, I'm sure. Some years later, she did get involved with a man who I think, at least at the time, was fairly solid in dealing with cases uh, of sexual abuse, and when she, 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 some people can come under so much stress that they, they just imagine and do all kinds of bizarre things. And when life got rather calm for her, she, she admitted that she had just acted like that because that's what she thought they wanted. And there's this power uh, of, uh, uh, this power that people have that if you just, just suggest some things, they're so suggestible that they, they, they carry it out uh, themselves, and so that was just kind of a strange thing. You can't base anything on experience. Uh, J, to make sounds and movements like an animal. Okay, those are just some. That, that was what the Puritans thought would make somebody, uh, would be characteristics of demon possession. Now in our modern time, you have people like Kurt Koch. Now you may not know who he is. He's a European who's written a number of books on uh, demon possessions, demons, things like that, and he says that there ev- you can know that there's a there, somebody's demon possessed. There's cursing, there's grinding of teeth. I didn't see any cursing in biblical examples. Grinding of teeth. There's a lot of people that have problems with that. Just talk to any dentist. Uh, suicide, falling into a trance. Cod states that possessing demons emit a scornful laugh if you hear someone's talking about the cross of Christ or the blood of Jesus. You don't get that out of Scripture. He goes on to say that such a person will display evil and hateful expressions, especially if spiritual things are talked about. And then we have someone that many of us would respect to a certain degree, former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, product of Houston, Texas, wrote a little book called uh, Demonism back in the uh, 80s, I believe, or 70s, by the name of Chuck Swindoll. And this is what Swindoll writes. Can a Christian be demonized? Now, as soon as somebody uses the word demonized, my hackles go up. Because that's the term that's used to try to avoid making diamonizomai demon-possessed. Because it's a, just this generic term of being acted upon by a demon. So Swindoll writes, can a Christian be demonized? 
For a number of years I questioned this, he says, but now I am convinced it can occur. If a, quote, ground of entrance has been granted the power of darkness, I want to know where that comes from in the Scripture, such as trafficking in the occult, a continual unforgiving spirit, a habitual state of carnality, etc., the demons see this as a green light, okay to proceed. Now, let's stop and think critically. Not in a negative sense, but just put your thinking caps on. Let's think about that little three- to four-year-old boy that would have the demon possess him, and he would go into convulsions and be thrown in the fire. Do you think he had been trafficking in the occult when he was three or four years old? You think? I don't think so. A continual unforgiving spirit at three or four, five, eh, eight or nine maybe, but not... A habitual state of carnality. Well, let me tell you, folks, if a habitual state of carnality is a prerequisite for being demon-possessed, then every unbeliever is born in carnality, can't live in any other state other than carnality until they are saved. So they're all open to demon possession. Swindoll goes on to say, I've worked personally with troubled, anguished Christians for many years. On a few occasions, I have assisted in the painful process of delivering them of demons. Is he arguing from Scripture or experience? Every one of these guys argues from experience. But how do they know? Look, I would rather, and, and I have people come to me and say, well, you know, I know this situation. I immediately go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and I don't believe a word they say. You know, it, it doesn't matter what your experience is. We can, we can, we can reinterpret all kinds of things. The issue isn't what happened. The issue is how did you interpret it? You had an experience, but you automatically interpret it within a certain category, but that doesn't mean your interpretive framework was correct because unless you're coming in a situation from the Word of God, your interpretive framework is going to be wrong, and you're going to think you felt certain things, or saw certain things when, in fact, you really didn't. So, all of that just establishes the reality of demon possession. Now, the question becomes, what in the world are we to do as believers? How do we know that a person can or cannot be demon-possessed, or can a Christian be demon-possessed? Well, I've got several things to go through to show that Christians cannot be demon-possessed. But let me just skip sort of skip to the last one, and we'll come back and look at the other ones later on. The last one has to do with the sufficiency of God's grace. 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 says that his divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. That first word relates to our physical life. The second word relates to our spiritual life through the knowledge of him who called us to by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, that is through the promises and principles of his word, you may be partakers of the divine nature. The principle here is that he has given to us all things pertaining to our spiritual life, everything that we need in relation to our spiritual life. Now, if the epistles never mention, never warn against, never mention demon possession, never warn against demon possession, and never give us a list of characteristics so that we can know for sure whether it's demon possession or emotional problems or chemical imbalances or whatever it may be, if the Word of God hasn't seen fit to inform us of this as a problem, it's not mentioned once as a problem for the Christian in in the epistles, and if prescriptions on how to solve that, if it is a problem, are not given, then my conclusion is it's not a problem. It's not one you're going to run into. It is not a problem for believers. And if demon possession occurs in this age among unbelievers, the solution for them is the solution for every other unbeliever, and that is the gospel. And that person is not obliterated by demon possession. He is simply having his, his control of his body overrun by demon possession. And he can still hear, he can still see, he is still aware of his surroundings, and he can still respond internally in his soul to the gospel. 
The solution is to give that person the gospel. And if they are positive, they will respond. And if they become a believer, the demon will be forced to leave. And there's all kinds of things and tricks that Satan pulls to try to convince people that the popular deceptions in relationship to demon possession are somehow valid. But we have to stick with what the Word of God says and the Word of God alone. Let's bow our heads together in closing prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have your Word that gives us sure and certain knowledge of things that are not uh, uh, not available to us through our experience or through our senses, and we must rely on your Word and not upon experience. Father, we pray that there's also that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He provided a complete and sufficient solution to the problem that faces man, which is sin. And simply by trusting in him, by accept, accepting him as your Savior, you receive eternal life. You are justified, Scripture says. You are born again. All of these things happen at the instant of your salvation and can never be lost. This is your opportunity right where you sit to make sure that you trust Christ as your Savior. Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us with the things we've studied, encourage us by realization that it is your power that keeps us. It is uh, through the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who fills us, who has made us a temple for, for the dwelling of Christ that protects us from this kind of invasion of a demon and that you will always watch over us and protect us. Now, Father, we pray that uh, as we go from here that you will uh, protect us and that we would be uh, encouraged to come back and study these things for ourselves, come to a greater understanding of them in our own soul. We pray this in Christ's name.